Section 9 of Rational Theology and Christian Philosophy, Volume 2, by John Tullock. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3. John Smith, Foundations of a Christian Philosophy, Part 4. 3. He proposed to consider the chief contents of revelation, or those pieces of revealed truth which tend most of all to foment and cherish true and real piety. But he was only able to enter upon the preliminary aspect of the subject, the idea or mode of revelation, how and in what manner this kind of truth is manifested unto mankind. The discourse upon prophecy is all that survives to us of his more extended plan. It is full, however, of valuable thoughts which go near to the heart of the whole subject. The following is a rapid summary of them. Smith penetrates directly to the true idea of revelation as a free influx of the divine mind upon our minds and understandings. All our primary and higher knowledge may in a sense be called revelation. It is a manifestation of truth to us through appropriate organs or faculties, of the truth of material things through our senses, and of the truth of higher spiritual things through our reason and conscience. The truth communicated in either way may very well be called truth of revelation, and insofar as we reach divine knowledge at any time through a direct and steady illumination of our spiritual faculties, we are all more or less prophets. The spiritual attitude always partakes more or less of prophetic enthusiasm. But revelation, in a special sense, implies the selection of a special race of prophets, of a class of minds peculiarly trained and qualified, not only to be the recipients of divine knowledge, but to be the organs of its communication to others. And this is exactly the aspect under which it is presented in Scripture. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. The scripture revelation is nothing else than the divine thought communicated to the succession of the Hebrew prophets from Abraham to Christ, and through them imparted to the world. Prophecy and revelation are essentially correlative. The former is the only way whereby this kind of truth can be dispensed to us. Our author traces with interest, but also with too many involvements of rabbinical learning, the character and development of Hebrew prophecy. He points out how rational and imaginative elements united to form the prophetic spirit, and how diverse prophetic ranks are to be reckoned according to the degree in which these elements respectively combined. The imagination was the sphere in which the prophetic imagery arranged and pictured itself, while the reason is conceived as looking forth upon the scene and interpreting its spiritual meaning or intelligible mysteries. The degree of prophetical illumination was in proportion to the predominance of the rational over the imaginative element, but only in one case was the former deemed to be exclusive, and the truth presented nakedly to the prophetic mind without the interposition of any schemes or pictures. This was supposed to be the special privilege of Moses founded on the statements that the Lord knew him face to face, and spoke with him mouth to mouth. And accordingly, Moses was placed by the Jewish doctors in a rank by himself, spoken of as the gradus mosaicus. From this highest grade of the prophetic spirit, three descending grades were reckoned, one in which the rational power, although no longer exclusive, yet prevails, penetrating directly through the imaginative or material form to the naked essence of the truth. Another, less perfect, in which the imaginative and rational powers equally balance each other. And a third, lowest of all, in which the imaginative power predominates, quote, so that the impressions made upon it are too busy and the scene becomes too turbulent for the rational faculty to discern the true mystical and anagogical sense of them clearly. 
in this case the enthusiasms spend themselves extremely in parables similitudes and allegories in a dark and obscure manner as is very manifest in zechariah's and many of ezekiel's prophecies as also those of daniel Close quote. there are two ways in which the prophetic spirit was ordinarily conveyed either in a dream or a vision the difference betwixt the two was in circumstantials rather than in anything essential as indeed there is no dream properly without a vision a voice was more usually heard in the former yet the jews our author says were wont to make a vision superior to a dream as representing things more to the life and more suddenly surprising and seizing the senses of the prophets all dreams spoken of in scripture as sent by god are by no means to be taken for prophetical many of them were merely nothetical or monitory and these were much weaker in their energy upon the imagination they had nothing of the ecstatical rapture whereby the prophets in the moments of the divine afflatus were snatched from themselves and made to realize the divine presence a careful distinction is also to be made betwixt the real enthusiasm characteristic of the prophetic spirit and mistaken enthusiasm the latter is a mere play of imagination or a vulgar assumption it is never able to rise above the low and dark region of sense and the more obtrusive it is the further it wanders from the truth but the genuine prophetical enthusiasm however intense quote, never alienates the mind seeing it seats itself as well in the rational as in the sensitive powers but always maintains a consistency and clearness of reason strength and solidity of judgment where it comes it doth not ravish the mind but inform and enlighten it Close quote. our author discusses at length many other aspects of the subject such as the ministration or agency of angels in the conduct of prophecy the symbolic actions attributed to the prophets the schools of the prophets and finally their style as recorded in scripture on all these points his views are characterized by largeness and depth of comprehension but he runs into too many details and borrows too much from the jewish doctors for us to quote or even to summarize he is at particular pains to explain how entirely scenical and imaginary many of the prophetic actions must be regarded as narrated in hosea jeremiah and ezekiel what the prophets are represented as saying and doing in such cases is only to be supposed as said and done in a vision their acts especially are not really or sensibly performed but only represented to the fancy for we must remember quote, that the prophetical scene or stage upon which all apparitions were made to the prophet was his imagination and that there all those things which god would have revealed unto him were acted over symbolically as in a mask in which diverse persons are brought in amongst which the prophet himself bears a part and therefore he according to the exigency of this dramatical apparatus must as the other actors perform his part Close quote. the same enlightenment and breadth of criticism characterize his remarks on the prophetic style in which he everywhere sees the peculiar expression of the prophetic mind and not any fixed or direct form of divine language the idea of verbal inspiration appears to him wholly unnecessary to guarantee the accuracy of the prophetic representations this was secured in the mere fact that they were men of knowledge who quote, could speak sense as wise men and tell their own thoughts and experiences truly and indeed it seems most agreeable to the nature of all prophetical visions and dreams wherein the nature of the enthusiasm consisted in a symbolical and hieroglyphical shaping forth of intelligible things in their imaginations and enlightening the understanding of the prophets to discern the scope and meaning of these visa or phantasmata that those words and phrases in which they were audibly expressed to the hearers afterwards or penned down should be the prophet's own 
for the matter was not as seems evident from what has been said represented always by words but by things Close quote. three smith's remaining discourses are occupied with various aspects of christian truth and in so far as they have a common aim may be said to unfold the distinctive character of christianity as a living power of righteousness and sanctification in human life the picture which he draws both of the gospel and its effects is in the main correspondent to that drawn by Whichcote, with here and there a yet fuller insight and comprehension greater wealth of spiritual illusion and a deeper grasp so to speak of evangelical principles where Whichcote sketches rather the ethical and outwardly harmonious relations of the divine life smith gets more to the root and vitalizing center his mind was both more creative in conception and more largely philosophic in survey in speaking for example of legal and evangelical righteousness he discriminates the latter on all sides thoroughly it is not only spiritual instead of formal according to the jewish point of view but it is a principle of life brought to the soul and not any mere spontaneous growth out of it or new mould and shape in a pedagogical kind of way in which the soul trains itself it is in short a divine gift and not any mere moral process on the theological side smith brings out more decisively than his teacher the distinctive divinity of christianity while on the other or practical side he emphasizes with equal force the vital union of religion and morality divinely given evangelical righteousness yet never merely lies alongside the soul formerly imputed to it as an addendum securing its acceptance with god but it spreads itself over all the powers of the soul quickening it into a divine life it is not a quote, doctrine wrapped up in ink and paper but a vitalis scientia a living impression made upon soul and spirit the gospel does not so much consist in verbis as in virtute neither doth evangelical dispensation therefore please god so much more than the legal did because as a finer contrivance of his infinite understanding it more clearly discovers the way of salvation to the minds of men but chiefly because it is a more powerful efflux of his divine goodness upon them as being the true seed of a happy immortality continually thriving and growing on to perfection it does not hold forth such a transcendent privilege and advantage above what the law did only because it acquaints us that christ our true high priest is ascended up into the holy of holies and there instead of the blood of bulls and goats hath sprinkled the ark and mercy seat above with his own blood but also because it conveys that blood of sprinkling into our defiled consciences to purge them from dead works far be it from me to disparage in the least the merit of christ's blood his becoming obedient unto death whereby we are justified but i doubt sometimes some of our dogmata and notions about justification may puff us up in far higher and goodlier conceits of ourselves than god hath of us and that we profanely make the unspotted righteousness of christ to serve only as a covering wherein to wrap up our foul deformities and filthy vices and when we have done think ourselves in as good credit and repute with god as we are with ourselves and that we are become heaven's darlings as much as we are our own Close quote. again quote, by so much the more acceptable any one is to god by how much the more he comes to resemble god it was a common notion in the old pythagorean and platonic theology that the divinity transformed into love and enamoured with its own unlimited perfections and spotless beauty delighted to copy forth and shadow out itself as it were in created beings which are perpetually embraced in the warm bosom of the same love from which they can never swerve nor apostatize till they also prove apostate to the estate of their creation 
and certainly it is true in our Christian divinity that that divine light and goodness which flows forth from God, the original of all, upon the souls of men, never goes solitary and destitute of love, complacency, and acceptation, which is always lodged together with it in the divine essence. And as the divine complacency thus dearly and tenderly entertains all those which bear a similitude of true goodness upon them, so it always abandons from its embraces all evil which never doth nor can mix itself with it. The Holy Spirit can never suffer any unhallowed or defiled thing to enter into it, or to unite itself with it. Therefore, in a sober sense, I hope I may truly say, there is no perfect reconciliation wrought between God and the souls of men, while any defiled and impure thing dwells within the soul, which cannot truly close with God, nor God with that. Unpolemical as Smith is in a polemical age, dwelling for the most part in a region of religious meditation far above the strife of tongues, it is yet evident here and there, in the larger movement of his thoughts, that he is striking at prevalent bigotries and dogmatic pretensions unwelcome to his school, as in the passage already quoted about justification, and in other passages such as the following, quote, It is not because our brains swim with a strong conceit of God's eternal love to us, or because we grow big and swell into a mighty bulk with airy fancies and presumptions of our acceptance with God, that makes us the more acceptable to Him. It is not all our strong dreams of being in favor with heaven that fills our hungry souls the more with it. It is not a pertinacious imagination of our names being enrolled in the book of life, or of the debt-books of heaven being crossed, or of Christ being ours while we find him not living within us, or of the washing away of our sins in his blood while the foul and filthy stains thereof are deeply sunk in our own souls. No, it must be a true compliance with the divine will which must render us such as the divinity may take pleasure in. In Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision availeth anything, nor any fancy built upon any other external privilege, but the keeping of the commandments of God. We have learned to distinguish too subtly, I doubt, in our lives and conversations, inter sacrum et profanum, our religious approaches to God and our worldly affairs. We must not think that religion serves to paint our faces, to reform our looks, or only to inform our heads, or instruct and tune our tongues. No, not only to tie our hands, and make our outward man more demure, and bring our bodies and bodily actions into a better decorum, but its main business is to purge and reform our hearts, and all the illicit actions and motions thereof. There are such who persuade themselves they are well affected to God, yet they can sometimes beat down the price of other men's religion to enhance the value of their own, or it may be by a burning and fiery zeal against the opinions and deportments of others that are not of their own sect, they lose the sense of all their own guiltiness. A religion that runs out only in particularities is but a dead carcass, and not indeed that true living religion which comes down from heaven. We have now presented nearly all that is characteristic in the substance and mode of Smith's religious thought, yet many passages remain in these concluding discourses, eloquent with such a high and pregnant meaning, that we have difficulty in omitting them. The following, however, must sum up our quotations. Quote, it is a fond imagination that religion should extinguish reason, whereas religion makes it more illustrious and vigorous, and they that live most in the exercise of religion shall find their reason most enlarged. True religion is no piece of artifice, it is no boiling up of our imaginative powers, nor the glowing heats of passion, though these are too often mistaken for it, when in our jugglings in religion we cast a mist before our own eyes, 
but it is a new nature informing the souls of men. It is a godlike frame of spirit, discovering itself most of all in serene and clear minds, in deep humility, meekness, self-denial, universal love of God, and all true goodness, without partiality and without hypocrisy, whereby we are taught to know God, and knowing Him to love Him, and conform ourselves, as much as may be, to all that perfection which shines forth in Him. True religion never finds itself out of the infinite sphere of the divinity, and wherever it finds beauty, harmony, goodness, love, ingenuity, wisdom, holiness, justice, and the like, it is ready to say, here and there is God. Wheresoever any such perfections shine out, a holy mind climbs up by these sunbeams and raises itself up to God. Religion is no such austere, sour, and rigid thing as to affright men away from it. No, but those that are acquainted with the power of it find it to be altogether sweet and amiable. It is no sullen stoicism, no sour pharisaism. It does not consist in a few melancholy passions, in some dejected looks or depressions of mind. But it consists in freedom, love, peace, life, and power. The more it comes to be digested into our lives, the more sweet and lovely we shall find it to be. Close quote. Enough has been presented to show how solid, fine, and rich a thinker Smith is. Of all the products of the Cambridge School, the select discourses are perhaps the highest, as they are the most accessible and the most widely appreciated. Many for whom the other members of the Platonic group possess comparatively little interest, and who have barely heard of Smith's teacher, Whichcote, have read with admiration these discourses. And indeed, no spiritually thoughtful mind can read them unmoved. They carry us so directly into an atmosphere of divine philosophy, luminous with the richest lights of meditative genius. Philosophic elevation is their pervading characteristic. We see a mind religious to the core, tremulous in its inmost chords with pious aspiration, not only free from all pietistic weakness and dogmatic narrowness, but poising itself naturally at an altitude out of sight of them. Smith is not only no controversialist, but the dust of controversy has never touched him. His mind bears no scores of party conflict, but is fresh as a newborn life, with open eyes of poetic wonder and divine speculation. He has not painfully reached the serene heights on which his thoughts dwell, but these heights are the natural level of his lofty and abounding spiritual nature. This elevation marks in our author both a certain intellectual and spiritual advance. The breadth and freedom of mind which we traced in Whichcote still lies in some degree on a polemical and scholastic background. He has worked himself out of technical subtleties and obtained a firm rational footing. But many of the trappings of the scholastic spirit still clung to him, as his correspondence with Tuckney plainly shows. He made a clear advance upon the theological spirit of his age, having pushed the lines of his religious thought manfully forward till they touched all the diverse aspects of speculative and moral culture. He thus redeemed religion from the dogmatism and faction which were alike preying upon it, and taught men to see in it something higher than any mere profession of opinions or attachment to a side. He well conceived and drew its ideal as the spiritual education of all our faculties. But this, which may be said to form the summit of Whichcote's thought, attained through meditative struggle and prolonged converse with Platonic speculation, was the starting point of Smith. He began easily on this level, and never needed to work out for himself the rational conception of religion. Religion was inconceivable to him under any other form than the idealization and crown of our spiritual nature. The divine represented to him from the first the complement of the human. 
the perfect orb which rounds and completes all its aspirations and activities. The assimilation of man to God was consequently the one comprehensive function of Christianity, and whatever contributes to this spiritual transformation is more or less of the nature of religion. Wherever there is, as he says, quote, beauty, harmony, goodness, love, ingenuity, wisdom, holiness, justice, and the like, there is God. Close quote. But Smith did more than merely develop this comprehensive ideal of religion. He not only moralized and broadened the conception of the divine, but he entered directly into its whole meaning, and inquired what it was as a phase of human knowledge as well as of human attainment. That religion cannot be separated from reason, nor morals from piety, was of the nature of an axiomatic truth to him. His special thought was, how does reason authenticate religion, and the divine idea in its totality rise into a valid element of human knowledge? He was, in short, from the beginning, and by right of mental birth, a Christian philosopher. Divinity presented itself to him in the shape of a science. Even if the answers given by him to the questions which he thus raised had been less satisfactory than they are, it was yet a definite advance in the thought of the seventeenth century to ask such questions, to conceive the idea of a philosophy of the divine. Theology had been hitherto viewed as a product of the schools, or, at the best, as a series of deductions drawn from a supposed infallible oracle. It was tradition, or dogma, resting on a verbal basis. And Smith, no doubt, had been taught it as a system of inherited formulae, ready to hand for the solution of all questions. But whatever traditionary impressions had thus been made upon him, had sunk into the large depths of his spiritual nature, and become merely food for its richer nurture, rather than left any formal trace behind. The great ideas of theology were taken up by him from the first as vital elements within the sphere of the soul itself. Whatever they are, he felt that they must have a real conformity to man's higher reason and life, and that the only valid science of them is to be sought in the ascertainment of this conformity. A science of the divine may embrace many things, elements of communicated and derived as well as of primary knowledge, but its basis must lie on the primary affirmations of the soul, and all its structure be traced back to the great question of man's essential character in the scale of being. What then is this? Is man essentially a spiritual being? And if so, what are the true contents of his spiritual reason or consciousness? These, the eternal problems of religious philosophy, were the problems to which Smith directly addressed himself with clear-sighted and admirable perspicacity. And his answers, upon the whole, go as nearly to the heart of their solution as any that have been given. He vindicated the distinctive reality of the human soul with clear effect, if not with any special resources of argument. All arguments on such a subject, from those of the Phaedo downwards, are, indeed, more or less of the same nature. And it may be safely said that no man, not already convinced, is likely to be convinced by them. Smith's argumentative details are not more conclusive than others. But he unfolds all the spiritual qualities of humanity with such a rich depth of insight that we feel, as it were, the fact of the soul to realize itself before us. The sense of the divine grows quick within us at the touch of his living analysis, and it witnesses itself not as the result of any elaborate inference, but as the primary being which we are, the original ground of all our life. And this is really the most that any thinker can accomplish on the subject. For the question of spirit versus matter, of immortality versus Epicureanism, comes in the end to a rational assumption on the one side or the other. We must start spiritualist or materialist, from within or from without. 
or we may start from the meeting point of both, the eternal doubleness which seems to lie at the basis of being. The one cannot be logically deduced from the other, but the one may be found in the other. An essential antithesis, subject-object, with the subjective or spiritual side in front. And the thinker who brings out most vividly, and helps us to understand most fully, this spiritual side of human thought and life, does most, after all, to attest its reality. The manner in which Smith attaches the belief in God to the belief in immortality was also a special service rendered to the cause of religious philosophy. He saw clearly what has since his time been so often declared authoritatively by the highest thinkers, that the only basis for the recognition of the divine in the world was the recognition of the spiritual in man. Both the fact and the character of deity must be primarily read in the human soul, and without this interpreter within, all life and nature would be really void to us of divine meaning. If we do not find God within ourselves, the whole fabric of the visible universe may whisper to us of him, but the whisper will be unintelligible, for we receive but what we give, and in our life alone does nature live. All questions concerning God and religion thus really cluster around one root, the root of an original divine principle in man. Revelation itself is nothing else than the historical illumination of this fontal source of the divine, while practical religion is its growth or development on the volitional and moral side. Smith saw all this plainly and expounded it luminously. He saw also, what perhaps Witchcote has not made so apparent, that the divine, while thus linked to human reason, and finding its first and essential utterance in it, is yet as a living power something which human nature itself could never elaborate. No mere philosophy or moralism can ever transmute itself into evangelical righteousness. This has its rise within the heart, no doubt, but not as a spontaneous product. It can only come from the original fount of divinity, a new divine force within us springing up into eternal life. While Smith therefore broadened, and in a sense humanized, the conception of religion, he at the same time, with admirable balance of mind, vindicated it as a distinctive divine power revealed in man. A righteousness not self-evolved, but divinely given through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. He was one of those rare thinkers in whom largeness of view and depth and wealth of poetic and speculative insight only served to evoke more fully the religious spirit, and while he drew the mold of his thought from Plotinus, he vivified the substance of it from St. Paul. End of chapter 3, part 4